I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream Podcast, where we explore the intersection of science, technology, and society. Unless you are an engineer or venture capitalist, in which case you're probably dreaming of Silicon Valley, for most of us, when you mention California, they will likely be thinking of Hollywood, sunny beaches, or perhaps even California wine. Grapes are California's number three farm crop. California produces 81% of all U.S. wine. And California is the world's number four wine producer. However, it's not all sunsets and ocean breezes that come with your Merlot. Perhaps exacerbated by climate change, the California grape growing industry has been beset with significant challenges, including pests, worsening droughts, and more frequent wildfires. On top of that, many California grape growers are facing a new challenge, extreme labor shortages. A Mother Jones article discusses an interview with a vineyard foreman named Sergio Sanchez, who says that 10 years ago, he would get 700 job applications for one grape growing season. But in 2017, perhaps due to U.S. immigration policies, he only got 15 applications. And American workers don't want to take farm picking jobs either, perhaps because of the low wages and difficult working conditions. But the world loves California wine. And so some grape growers are turning to automation to solve their labor shortage problems. These sorts of automation changes are happening today across many industries. And so in episode three of the Techno Slipstream podcast, we continue our deep dive into automation by taking a look at automation today. In the first podcast episode, we set the stage for many of the issues at stake regarding automation technology and society, especially the future of work. In the second episode, as a specific example, we also looked at the history of automation in the numerical machine tools industry after World War II. In today's episode, we bring the automation focus to today what we can expect from automation, and when to expect it. But before we dive in, I want to say thank you for the encouraging feedback and comments I've received based on the first two podcast episodes. I really appreciate it. At the end of this episode, I'll discuss a few ways you can help to support the podcast. But thank you for listening. Okay, let's dive in. We base our deep dives on relevant research, books, news, and articles, and so to get an understanding of what we can expect from automation and when we might expect it, in this episode, we turn in particular to a series of articles written by Jeffrey Funk. Funk is an independent technology consultant who was previously a professor for 30 years and who has recently retired from National University of Singapore as Associate Professor of Technology Management. He's written extensively on technological change, innovation, and our technological future. And there's a series of three of his articles related to automation that I want to thematically explore in today's episode. We'll get to those articles in a moment, but first, I want to get back to California wine. Researchers at the University of California, Davis, among others, are looking to automation to help the labor shortage issues they are facing. The approach involves developing semi-autonomous tractors to assist in vineyard management, 
including picking the grapes. Some of these tractors are even able to drive themselves. In a WTOC News report, Con Kerturl, professor in the UC Davis Viticulture and Enology Department, says that while these new automated tractors have a higher upfront cost compared to older tractors, and more skills are needed by the drivers to operate the new equipment, the autonomous tractors become more economical after about two seasons due to the reduction in needed manual labor. Kerturl estimates labor costs without automation are about $1.20 per vine, but drop to about 12 to 22 cents per vine with automation. These savings are significant, especially when you consider that there are about 1,500 vines per acre. And in addition to higher farm margins, growers also report improved grape quality, which leads to better tasting wines for consumers at more affordable prices. While creating self-driving tractors that can prune vines, remove weeds, and pick the grapes is an exciting and obvious example of automation, we might also expect, for example, some fast food jobs or bank teller jobs or first-level help desk jobs, to also be similarly automated. Basically, the idea is that any tasks that are routine and repeatable are thought to be ripe for automation. Think warehouse or assembly line jobs involving sorting or packing, some manufacturing jobs, and basic customer service jobs. But perhaps surprisingly, there are also many opportunities for intelligent automation in the knowledge work professions. Now, this might be surprising because almost by definition, a knowledge work job is one that is not routine and repeatable. If you think about what programmers, lawyers, academics, physicians, engineers, and scientists do, for the most part, those jobs require non-routine problem-solving skills. Thus, you might think those types of jobs can't be automated. However, according to our first deep dive article, AI's future Combining RPA with AI to Augment Knowledge Workers by George Barra and Jeffrey Funk in Mind Matters, actually there are opportunities for automation within the knowledge work professions. As a motivating example, Barra and Funk have us consider the job of a counterterrorism analyst. Now, in case you're not familiar with that position, the basic task of a counterterrorism analyst is to collect, analyze, and assess intelligence data from networks of terrorist groups all around the world, and put this information within the context of world events in order to make decisions about which possible future acts of terrorism might occur. Certainly, something so complex and nuanced as that can't be automated, right? Well, according to one element of that job, say, collecting social media posts and other documents, videos, audio, and web pages on the internet, Collecting files on the internet is routine and repeatable. Simple program scripts can easily scrape the internet for possible useful data. The analyst would need to read that data, which might be in different human languages, in order to understand whether a given document or file contains useful information. Though keep in mind that the analyst had better have a lot of coffee on hand because when you hoover up files on the internet, you're going to end up with a lot of data. Now, consider translating those documents from one language into another. This is also, indeed, routine and repeatable for AI algorithms. These algorithms can even summarize the documents, assess a text sentiment, and rate the usefulness of the document for the analyst's particular search goals. Thus, due to just a few algorithms, that mountain of 
hoovered up internet data has just been turned into translated, organized, and classified tiny piles of useful information, perhaps even automatically passed on to other applications or sent to other analysts. All this happening when the counterterrorism analyst pushes that proverbial automation button in their analysis application. Now, once this is done, the counterterrorism analyst still needs to look at the resulting information and then make decisions, of course, about if or how that information impacts real-world events. The human is not completely out of the loop here. But in theory, the repeatable and routine part of the analyst's job, collecting files, translating text from one language to another, binning, sorting, and classifying the results, all of those drudgery tasks have now been automated, leaving the more interesting parts of the job to the counterterrorism analyst. There's a lot going on behind the scenes, though, with these various automation algorithms discussed in this example. Language translation, named entity extraction, and sentiment analysis encompass a variety of machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithms we often categorize as natural language processing. The purpose of natural language processing algorithms is to process human languages, spoken or written. Even handwritten text is routinely and repeatedly handled with these algorithms. AI, or artificial intelligence, is a large component of what makes natural language processing algorithms work. But there is another category of algorithms that made our cyberterrorism analyst's job significantly easier, and that is especially important in general for automating knowledge work jobs. The algorithms for collecting the files from various applications and locations, extracting information from those files, and sending that information to other applications is often collectively referred to as robotic process automation, or RPA. There is no actual robot, like our grape-picking tractor we discussed at the beginning of the episode. Here, the robots are virtual. Robotic process automation means essentially that we can have one or more programs on a computer that can interact with other programs, much like a human user might do, extract out useful information, and send that information to other system processes and applications, all in an automated fashion. Consider a human office worker whose job it is to process all the job applications that a company might receive, and those applications might be contained in Microsoft Word document files. Say the human office worker had to compile a list of all the applicant names and email addresses into a spreadsheet, and then enter that resulting spreadsheet into the company's customer relation management software system, so others in the company can in turn process that information in order to evaluate the candidates, schedule interviews, and so on. So our human office worker would, using their mouse, open, one by one, the Word document applications on their computer, scan the application looking for the applicant's name and email address, then copy-paste that information into a spreadsheet. They would then open up the CRM system, create a new ticket, attach the spreadsheet, and then submit it into the system. With RPA, a program could do the same thing the human just did. In a training run, the RPA system could record the steps the human worker takes to open and process the various files. Then after training, the system could perform those actions on its own. It would process each Word document, extract out the necessary information, compile it into a spreadsheet, create a new ticket, and submit the spreadsheet. With RPA, virtual processes are either initiated by a human user 
or can just run in the background on their own depending on the scenario in question. We've actually been using the ideas behind RPA for years now. For example, iOS, the operating system in your iPhone and iPads, has a feature called shortcuts that allow you to stitch together basic tasks across multiple applications. Say you get a low battery warning on your iPhone or iPad. You can either press a button on your phone or even use Siri dictation to initiate the shortcut, which would then automatically execute a series of actions. It would turn on your iPhone or iPad's low power mode. It would activate airplay mode to turn off your cell phone. It would kill your Wi-Fi and it would turn down the display's brightness. All that with a button press. There is even a police shortcut that is activated when the user tells Siri, I'm getting pulled over. The shortcut automatically pauses your music, activates your front-facing camera, starts recording video, turns down the phone's brightness, activates Do Not Disturb, and then sends a video of the encounter to a pre-programmed contact. Using similar ideas behind Apple shortcuts, RPA platforms have been developed for use in corporate enterprise systems. Tools such as Automation Anywhere and UiPath allow the creation of virtual robots, sometimes just called bots, to monitor the system for certain events and perform tasks on one or multiple computers on a network, coordinating and interacting with a series of applications and systems to perform complex but routine and repeatable automated workflows. These platforms are improving, adding features, hooks for developers to integrate into their code, and the ability to run on desktops, servers, or in virtual machines. The integration of RPA with AI, however, is where use in augmenting knowledge work jobs really shines, so-called intelligent automation. There is a lot of marketing hype with the intelligent part, though, of intelligent automation. However, I think that's because too much weight is given to the powers of artificial intelligence. Consider, for example, that many artificial intelligence algorithms are really designed to just perform A to B mappings with your data. Given an image, the algorithm maps that picture to the appropriate label, such as a cat or a dog. That's it. And, of course, there's much more to intelligence than just A to B mappings. The AI algorithm, for example, does not understand or comprehend what a cat or a dog is like humans do. Rather, the AI algorithm knows that if it receives as input these types of pixels, then the label choice will be the letters C-A-T. And if those other pixels are input to the system, then the label choice will be the letters D-O-G. Framed that way, AI is really just a complex math function, far from what we actually consider to be intelligence. So while intelligent automation isn't really intelligent and likely won't be replacing complex knowledge worker jobs in their entirety, Let's discuss more about how those RPA and AI systems can help or augment knowledge workers. The point is really to understand how RPA and AI can help knowledge workers do their jobs better. Apologies for this digression. It took this bit of groundwork to set the context for our discussion. But let's get back to Funk. In their article, Bara and Funk say that the easiest tasks for RPA involve processing standardized documents. Think invoices, receipts, and forms. The information in these documents is in known locations. So in those cases, RPA can easily extract out the needed information and place them into other documents for further processing. However, 
if the data is not standardized. A commonly used term here is non-structured data. For example, think about something like handwriting. Then in those situations, AI algorithms can help turn non-structured data into structured data, where the RPA algorithms would then take over. In their article, Barra and Funk give two examples of this type of intelligent automation, where I'm using the term intelligent automation to mean AI-enabled RPA. The first example is to consider a lawyer's office that must process, review, understand, and respond to various types of contracts. This is a complex job, difficult for one person to do. Consider that for a long contract, different lawyers specializing in different aspects of law might need to review the different sections of the contract. An AI algorithm might be able to determine which lawyer might be best assigned to the different sections of the contract, and the RPA algorithms could then organize the routing and workflow. The second example is to consider accounting. Here, AI and RPA algorithms could work together to extract the needed data from the various forms and create needed reports, perhaps even performing some of the intermediate calculations. The RPA algorithms could even then create tickets in the enterprise software and route the reports and other information to the appropriate people or work queues. So these are the sorts of intelligent automation examples we should be expecting. The grape farmers will slowly update their tractors to allow for more mechanical grapevine maintenance and harvesting, sure. But a larger area ripe for automation, <laughs> apologies for overusing the grape harvesting metaphor, lawyer offices will slowly update their software systems to allow for more sophisticated RPA and AI functionality, as will accounting offices, journalists, engineers, in other words, Funk says that we're going to see incremental progress in intelligent automation, especially in knowledge work professions. Knowledge workers have always been on the leading edges of technologies that help them do their jobs easier, quicker, or faster. And those jobs tend to be based on advanced computing systems. And so this trend with knowledge workers will continue with intelligent automation. So now, when you hear a marketer talk about intelligent automation... Hopefully this gives you a better idea of the sorts of systems and functionalities that are actually being discussed. But what about self-driving cars? I can hear you asking. After all, you might have read the articles gushing that Elon Musk promises we'll have a million robo-taxis on the road by 2020. Well, this might be a good point in our discussion to bring up Funk's second article, Why AI Moonshots Miss, that he wrote with Gary Smith, which came out just this May in Slate. The main point of the article is that Elon Musk is not the first person to make grandiose AI predictions that turn out to be grossly wrong, nor will he be the last. For example, Funk notes that Nobel Prize and Turing Award winner Herbert Simon said in 1965 that, quote, machines will be capable within 20 years of doing any work a man can do. Note that in 2021, we are nowhere near achieving that goal. Some 36 years after Simon's prediction for when we humans were to have all been retired with no work to do. Funk's article has example after example of similar grandiose failed AI predictions. Even today, companies like Elon Musk's are sinking a lot of money into various AI projects, thinking it's an easy problem to solve. I found an article titled The End of Starsky Robotics, that tells a story exactly as predicted by Funk. In 2015, Stefan Seltz-Oxmacher, 
started the company Starsky Robotics to create driverless trucks. The technical promise looked good. AI seemed to be following the exponential increase of Moore's Law, which is the law that suggests that the number of transistors on a silicon chip will double every 18 to 24 months. So the expectation was that AI's capabilities would exponentially increase, meaning that soon, like Simon had predicted some 56 years ago, any day now, we humans will be out of work because of the rise of robots and AI. So Stefan started his company in 2015, and by 2016, they had developed the first street-legal vehicle to do work without a human behind the wheel. By 2019, their truck became the first truck to drive fully unmanned on a live highway. So far, so good. The performance improvements of their self-driving truck were exponential, as everyone expected. But then the company shut down in 2020. After a bit of reflection standing in the ruins of his once-groundbreaking company, Stefan suggests that the problem we have today is that AI performance growth is actually not exponential. It follows what is known as an S-curve. With minimal effort, you can make an AI prototype that attracts a lot of investor money. And then you have a few early quick wins as performance improves quickly. But then performance over time flattens out. Implementing AI in the real world, with real-world constraints, is much harder than making a prototype in the lab made with oversimple constraints and requirements. For example, in the case of Starsky Robotics, to produce self-driving trucks that can drive in real traffic with real humans, you need safety engineering so that you know the conditions under which your product will fail. And you need to know the impacts on loss of life due to your product's failures. Safety engineering was needed to produce the self-driving trucks that drive on real streets. But investors were not interested in funding that, nor were they interested in waiting for the time needed to add on those real-world requirements. Safety engineering is just one of the aspects involved in engineering large systems that is critical to a system's long-term success. But unfortunately, those sorts of concerns do not attract the attention of venture capital money. Safety engineering and other sorts of maintenance work is often invisible, takes a lot of money, takes a lot of what is known as hidden labor, and takes a lot of time. To go from a prototype to a statistically reliable system can take 10 times to 1,000 times more work. That level of effort does not compute from an investment standpoint. By the way, if you want more information on this, work is being done by folks at The Maintainers, that's themaintainers.org, to research and advocate on the importance of maintenance of self and systems in society. But hopefully from this example, you can see that there is a gap between the startup side of capitalism and real-world engineering. I don't know if these are just limitations or pathological flaws in the venture capital startup model, but by giving lots of money to a startup to create a prototype with lots of features in a short amount of time, and then expecting the startup to ramp up quickly to production as well, as we can see in the case of Starsky Robotics, for example, this is a recipe for disaster. The level of engineering required to produce a prototype is orders of magnitude less than it is to put something into production, especially for a complex system like a self-driving vehicle, where the risks and stakes for getting that design correct are very high. Normally, the prototype is just meant to be a proof of concept. To make the actual production product, 
you are meant to go back and redesign the product correctly based on what you learned in making the prototype and based on feedback from users of the prototype. This new design is where you incorporate important elements like safety, security, fairness, maintainability in the beginning, design aspects that are typically left out of a bare-bones prototype effort. But with the venture capital startup model, because of the intense pressure to add more exciting features like AI and get the product out the door as quickly as possible, I think most startups just reuse their prototype design as their production design. Unfortunately, this bakes into the design those poor design choices used to make the prototype. For example, if you use a biased or error-ridden dataset to make your prototype because it was convenient and allowed you to get your prototype up and running quickly, well, then in the venture capital startup model, that dataset will also be used in the actual product. And you've just now invested a lot of money into a company making products with known flaws, flaws that can get people killed in the case of AI systems. Or consider our self-driving vehicle. It's going to be difficult to add on safety and security once a lot of early design choices have been made. Safety and security are features that should be part of the initial design phase, not an optional add-on last-minute feature. I just don't see how an investment model that purposely encourages poorly designed products is good for society, especially when the complexity and power of those products with the addition of AI, increases the risks and the stakes. So what does this mean for the future of intelligent automation systems? Funk's third article we examine in this episode sums up his assessment of the future of intelligent automation with the title, Expect Evolution, Not Revolution, published in IEEE Spectrum. One of the reasons AI and AI-infused automation attract so much attention, Hollywood movies like The Terminator and The Matrix aside, is because they promise big economic returns. In his article, Funk mentions that London-based DeepMind Technologies, which, like Google, is a subsidiary of the parent company Alphabet, received lots of attention because in 2016 they announced they reduced the cooling bills at a Google data center by 40%. And the expectations were that they would work similar energy-saving miracles throughout the UK. However, Funk was not able to find any evidence of actual energy gains. Talks of having DeepMind optimize the UK's national grid broke down, and in 2017, DeepMind reported $366 million in losses, which grew to $571 million by 2018. This is just another example of extreme economic promises of AI based on prototype results, followed by real-world disappointments. Yet, the rosy AI forecasts continue unabated. Marketing forecasts by McKinsey and others predicted that AI-enabled products, quote, have the potential to create between $3.5 trillion and $5.8 trillion in value annually across nine business functions in 19 industries. So you can perhaps understand why the venture capitalists are excited about the disruption potentials of AI. But to investigate the actual evidence behind these claims, Funk did an analysis of 40 top U.S. startups working in AI. And they all either had valuations greater than $1 billion or had more than $70 million in equity funding. The resulting top AI startups were in the following technology areas. Basic computer hardware and software, healthcare, finance, transportation, automation tools, agriculture, and a catch-all category that included 
music recognition, geospatial analytics, human interaction, and photo-video recognition. There are a lot more details in Funk's article, but the basic conclusion is that he finds the chances that these AI-enabled companies provide significant productivity improvements is low, and near-term subjective probabilities for any of these companies to turn a profit is also very low, whereby near-term, he means approximately 10 years into the future. Funk says, we therefore should not expect the heralded major disruptions in industries and businesses that you read in the marketing literatures. But instead, we should expect gradual, incremental gains in productivity, mostly from AI-enhanced RPA systems implemented in knowledge worker professions, as we discussed earlier. Over the timescale of multiple decades, the results will likely be impressive, but incremental improvements is the order of the day. And so that is an overview of where we are with automation today and how soon we are likely to see the big productivity and economic gains we hear about hyped in the news. And with that, we wrap up episode three of the Techno Slipstream podcast. Thanks for listening, and please be sure to subscribe. If you want more information or want to send suggestions, head over to technoslipstream.com, where you can sign up for the Techno Slipstream email newsletter. Right now, that is the main method I use for communication and feedback. If you'd like to support the Techno Slipstream podcast, you can head over to our Patreon page to sign up. This is a new podcast, and your support is very important. I'm hosting this podcast on the Buzzsprout platform, which has a free tier that hosts podcast episodes for only 90 days. So I could use your support so these episodes don't get removed. And in addition to supporting the show, on Patreon, you can sign up to get copies of the show transcripts, including links to the articles and books discussed in each episode. And of course, there are other ways to support the show. You can subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. And if you can, my understanding is that Apple considers five-star reviews to be a big signal boost in terms of the ranking of the podcast. So a favorable review would also be appreciated. But in any case, again, thank you for listening. And until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Slipstream.